your Bibles open to Luke chapter 7. Those verses that were just read will be our text this morning. Luke 7, verses 1 through 10. My throat's a little bit scratchy this morning, so if I cough or clear my throat, please forgive me. The title of the message this morning is The Centurion's Faith. The Centurion's Faith. As we begin Luke 7, we have this remarkable account of a centurion whose expression of faith, we're told, caused Jesus to marvel. He marveled. And first we're going to look at the setting and the characters that are found in this passage, and then we're going to look at the miracle that was performed. And we will give special attention to the words of Jesus found in verse 9. And in this text, we see elements of faith that please God. Elements of a faith that please God. Before we begin, let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Lord, we pray that as we open up your word this morning, that you do a work in our hearts and lives. Pray that our hearts will be open, receptive to the working of the Holy Spirit. We pray that we would learn and grow as we study here this morning, and that we would go out into our world and be gospel lights and witnesses to those around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, first we see the setting of this account. In chapter 6, if you remember, Jesus had been teaching in the hills outside of Capernaum. That's where he chose the twelve apostles. And then uh, he preached that sermon, which we studied at the end of chapter 6. And chapter 7 begins by telling us about a change in location. Look again there at verse 1. Now when he had entered, or excuse me, when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. So Jesus, he went back to this city of Capernaum. This is that city on the northwest end of the Sea of Galilee, and it was a major center of Christ's earthly ministry. And Capernaum is where the events of this passage took place. Well, now let's look at those who were involved in or who witnessed the events of this text. First, we have Jesus. We're told he entered into Capernaum. Jesus entered the city. So Jesus was there. Now we're told about this sick servant. Now, verse 2 tells us four things about this servant. First, that he was a servant. That's that word found all throughout the New Testament, which can mean servant or slave. Second, he was dear to his master. Third, he was sick. And then finally, he was at the point of death. He was ready to die. In Matthew's account of this miracle, we're told that the servant was sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. Tormented. Apparently, he was suffering in a terrible way because of his sickness. Then we're told about the elders of the Jews. These would have been men who held position in the synagogue there in Capernaum. They were religious leaders in that Jewish community. Verse 6, we're told that there were friends sent from the centurion to Jesus with a message. It's very possible that these friends were Gentiles. Now, if you remember, Capernaum is not a huge city, but it's a very important city in that region. It went along an ancient trade route which connected Egypt and Syria, and it's believed to have been a garrison town, an administrative center, a custom station where the Romans collected taxes. And so it was a very important settlement. And because the Romans used this city as an administrative center, there was a significant population of Gentiles in Capernaum. And we know that the Jews were not to intermingle with the Gentiles in the way that friends would. If you remember in Acts chapter 10, there in verse 28, 
Peter said to the Roman centurion Cornelius, you know that it is an unlawful thing for a man that is a Jew to keep company or to come unto one of another nation. So these friends of the centurion, they were most likely Gentiles. Then there were followers of Jesus. Verse 9 tells us that Jesus turned and he spoke to the people who were following him. This is some portion of that multitude that was present for the sermon in chapter 6. People from Judea, Jerusalem, Tyre, Sidon, the disciples, the twelve apostles. A portion of that crowd is present here as well. And then finally, we're told about the centurion. And after Jesus, the centurion is the main character in this passage and the one that we are told the most about. So we'll spend some time looking at the centurion. First, we know he was an accomplished military officer. Verse 2 tells us he was a centurion. This was a position of significant authority. That word centurion comes from the number of men they originally commanded, a century, or about a hundred men. Now, by the time of Christ, the structure of the Roman army had changed, and the centurion would normally command 80 men, about 80 men under his direct command. But centurions also held positions within the Roman cohort and then within the legion as a whole. And that level of authority would vary based on seniority, experience, and ability. The highest-ranking centurion in a legion would be 8th in overall command. So that's 8th in command of a group of between 5,000 and 6,000 men. So it could be a position of very significant authority, a significant role in the Roman military. Centurions were also highly respected by their fellow soldiers. There are three ways that a man can become a centurion. He could be appointed by the Senate or the Emperor. He could be promoted from the ranks by a senior officer. Or finally, he could be elected by his fellow soldiers. And in almost every case, this promotion would be based on the centurion's ability to lead men in battle. Centurions were required to lead men from the front. And the more that a man was promoted, the closer he got to the very front line of battle. This structure of promotion by merit meant that centurions were usually highly respected by their fellow soldiers. Centurions had to be veterans, and they had to be literate. They had to be able to read and write. A man would have to be in the Roman military several years, ideally 15 years or longer, before he was eligible to be promoted to the rank of centurion. And he had to be literate because he would need to receive and give written orders. So it was no small thing to be a centurion. We might just read that and move on very quickly. But this was a significant position. He was an accomplished military officer. And later on, when this man tells Jesus that he understands authority, this is why he says that. He really does, because he has this position of significant authority. We're also told that this centurion was a man of compassion. That may seem like a contradiction to what just came. This is a battle-hardened centurion. He is serving in Galilee, a notoriously rebellious and dangerous region. Can such a man afford to be a man of compassion? But verse 2 tells us that his servant was dear unto him. The centurion was burdened and grieved for his sick servant, a servant who is suffering terribly with his disease. Some people who are in positions of authority are unconcerned about those who are under them, about their needs, their struggles, their trials, their suffering. But not this centurion. His servant was dear unto him. And this centurion was a respected, generous, and God-fearing man. We're told in verse 3 that he sent the elders of the Jews 
to Jesus on his behalf. And remarkably, we're told that they went. They went. So it's not common for Jewish elders in Galilee to be friends with centurions. But these elders had a great deal of respect for the centurion. Note particularly what they tell Jesus in verse 4. In verse 4 of our text, they came to Jesus. They besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. They told Jesus that this centurion was worthy. Worthy of what? Well, worthy to receive what he requested, that Jesus would heal his servants. What were the Jewish elders really saying? Whether they fully understand their re- understood their request or not, they were saying, this centurion is worthy to receive a miracle. He's worthy to receive the miraculous power of God on his behalf. In their judgment, he was worthy of a miracle. Now, this is an important claim. We're going to come back to it, but just remember it here. We're also told that this centurion was a generous man. Look at verse 5. The Jewish elders told Jesus, He loveth our nation and hath built us a synagogue. This is why these Jewish elders liked this centurion so much. Look what he has done for us. He has built us a synagogue. Certainly he deserves a miracle. Now a centurion in the first century would have made between $100,000 and $400,000 in today's money, depending on his position within the legion and then how you convert that pay into modern money. And if you survived any length of time as a centurion, you could become very wealthy. Now it was hard to survive. Remember, the more you're promoted, the closer you got to the front line in battle. Centurions would wear a distinct uniform so they could be easily recognized in battle by their men, but also by the enemy. They're often targeted. But if you could survive for any length of time, This position paid very well. And this centurion, he was very generous with his wealth. It's likely that this synagogue, which the centurion helped finance, was there in the city of Capernaum. And we only know of one synagogue in that city. If you go online, you can see pictures of the ruins of a 4th century synagogue that are still there in Capernaum today. And that synagogue was built on top of a 1st century synagogue. And that first century synagogue was a substantial stone structure built to a very high standard of craftsmanship. And it would have been a very expensive building. But the centurion helped build a synagogue for the Jews. He was a very generous man. And finally, he was a God-fearing man. I draw this conclusion from two statements found in our text. First, going back to verse 5, the Jewish elders said, He loveth our nation. He loveth our nation. Why would a centurion love the Jewish nation? For the God that they worshipped. Remember, they said, He loveth our nation and hath built us a synagogue. Because of his love for the Jewish nation, he built the Jews a place to worship there in Capernaum. Jesus said in John 4.22, Salvation is of the Jews. And to some degree, this centurion knew that. That's a strong statement, but I believe it's supported by what Jesus said in verse 9. And that's the second statement. Found in this text, which I believe shows the centurion was a God-fearing man. Jesus said in verse 9, I have not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. Jesus marveled at this man's faith and called it great. Centurion, to some degree, was a God-fearing man. And finally, he was a humble man. He was humble. Verse 6, 
His friends delivered this message to Jesus. I am not worthy that thou shouldst enter under my roof. Without a doubt, he was familiar of that Jewish custom mentioned by Peter in Acts 10 of not keeping company with Gentiles. And the Jews would carry it to the point of not even going to a Gentile's house. Though the centurion had the power and authority, at least from a human perspective, to force Jesus to come to him, he sent this message to Jesus. I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. In verse 7, he said, Neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee. This man had a high regard for Jesus and a very low opinion of himself. In comparison, he said, I know I am not even worthy to come to you. And that's a remarkable statement. And again, we'll, we'll come back to it. But for now, just note the humility shown by the centurion. Well, so far we've looked at the setting of this miracle, where it happened, and who was involved, or who was there that witnessed it. Now let's look at the miracle itself. And the miracle itself, or the description of it, is only found here in verse 10 of our text. And they that were sent, returning to the house, found the servant whole who had been sick. This servant who had been sick to the point of death. This servant who was grievously tormented. He was healed. He was made whole. Jesus did not touch this man. Jesus did not even see this man. We're not even told that Jesus said anything directly about this servant. He was sick. His master, the centurion, asked Jesus to heal him, and he was made whole. This is a remarkable demonstration of the miraculous power of Jesus Christ. And again, the miracles of Christ, they demonstrate his authority. They demonstrate that his power came from God the Father. And they support his claim that he was the Christ, the Son of God, the Anointed One, sent by God, the Messiah. Now look again at what Jesus did and said when he performed this miracle. What Jesus did and said. First, verse 9 tells us that Jesus marveled at him. That is, the centurion. Now this word marveled, it means to wonder at, to be surprised or astonished. And this word is often used in the Gospels to describe the reaction of the people to the miracles Jesus performed. Jesus would perform a miracle, and those who witnessed it would marvel. They would be in awe. They would be astonished. And they would wonder at this power demonstrated by Jesus, and rightly so. An appropriate response as the people see a miracle performed. But we're only told of two occasions when Jesus marveled. Only two occasions in the Gospels where we're told that Jesus marveled. And on both of those occasions, Jesus marveled at people's faith, or lack thereof. In our text this morning, Jesus marveled at the faith shown by the centurion. And the only other occasion when Scripture tells us Jesus marveled is in Mark 6, 6. When Jesus was in his home country, there around Nazareth, the area where he grew up, we're told that he marveled at the people's unbelief. What a striking contrast. What a striking contrast. The people who knew Jesus best did not believe. To such a degree... And against such powerful demonstrations of God's power through Jesus, that this was astonishing to Jesus. He marveled at their unbelief. But this centurion, who as far as we know had never even met Jesus, he may have never even laid eyes on Jesus. 
This man who was a Gentile, this man expressed a faith that Jesus marveled at. Look again at the message the centurion sent to Jesus in verses 6 through 8. I'm going to read those verses again. The centurion sent this message to Jesus. Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldst enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers. And I say unto one, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh, and to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. So he begins and he says, Lord, trouble not thyself. He called Jesus Lord. Now we understand that not everyone who calls Jesus Lord will enter the kingdom. Jesus warned very strongly about that in Matthew 7, 21. But the centurion's use of this title does reveal what the centurion thought about Jesus. The word Lord is kurios, and it means supreme in authority. And this man didn't just say Lord, but he meant it. He believed that Jesus had supreme authority, and that's evidenced by the rest of what he said. Because he goes on, and you remember, he says, I am not worthy. I am not worthy. He did not think himself worthy to have Jesus under his roof. He did not think himself worthy to go to Jesus himself. Now remember, the elders of the Jews had a far different opinion. In verse 4, they told Jesus that the centurion was worthy to receive Jesus' attention. He was worthy to receive the miracle he had asked for, the healing of his servant. And why did they think he was worthy? They said, he loveth our nation and hath built us a synagogue. Look what he has done. Look at his love. Look at his generosity. Look at his promotion of religion. He is worthy to receive a miracle from you, Jesus. This statement from the Jewish elders, it reveals much about their theology. They thought of God along these lines. How can we get what we want from God? We must do good. We must show ourselves worthy. If we work hard enough, if we show enough love, if we're generous, if we promote religion, then we will be worthy to receive from God those things that we want. And that's what they said to Jesus. This man is worthy to receive a miracle, a supernatural work of God on his behalf because of his works. What he has done has made him worthy. How often do we think of God in this exact same way? If I do enough good things, God will be pleased with me. If I do enough good, then God will give me what I want. That's works righteousness. It's a hopeless cause. It's a hopeless cause. It doesn't matter who you are doesn't matter how much good you have done. It will never be enough to merit God's favor. We like to think that we start at a level position. Neither good nor bad. As we go through life, we try to do more good than we do bad. And in the end, if our good outweighs our bad, then God will be pleased with us. The Bible teaches that we do not start in a neutral position. We are born under the sin of our father Adam. 1 Corinthians 15.22 says that in Adam all die. Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. 
We don't start in a neutral position. We start in sin. And to level the scale, what would we need to do? We like to think God's standard is good, but it's not good. God's standard is perfection. The standard of holiness is God himself. God's standard is perfection. To level the scale, we would need to be perfect. And not perfect in the judgment of men, but perfect in the judgment of God. Not perfect from this point forward, but perfect for our whole lives. It's already too late. We've already blown it. But even if we could be perfect, that's not enough. Because even if we could be perfect, the best we could do would bring ourselves back to even. We would still be unprofitable servants like those described in Luke 17, 10. We would still have to do somehow more to earn God's favor, but we cannot. Works righteousness is a lost cause, and it always has been. Keeping the law is not the way of salvation. The law reveals our sin to us and points us to the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. He is the way of salvation. He gives His righteousness to us, free and undeserved. And it is the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ which pleased God the Father, which brings to us salvation. And that righteousness is given to us in salvation. He takes our sin and He gives us His righteousness. We don't stand before God in our works, but in the perfect, finished work of Jesus Christ. We are not worthy. Jesus is worthy. And we can only stand before God in Jesus Christ. Now the Jewish elders, they said, this centurion was worthy. But he said, I am not worthy. I am not worthy. And he was right. He was not worthy. This centurion had a better understanding of who Jesus was than even the Jewish elders. He understood something of Jesus' authority and he knew that he was unworthy to have Jesus come to him or even for him to go to Jesus himself. But notice this. This is extremely important. The centurion still asked Jesus for help. Though he knew he was not worthy, he still asked Jesus for help. Oh, that we would all see our unworthiness to come to Jesus. And oh, that we would all still come. Salvation is not based on merit. It is based not on our worthiness, but on grace. The grace of God, free and unmerited. In one sense, we could say that your unworthiness is what qualifies you to come to Christ. Jesus said in Luke 5.32, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I love the words of the hymn, Come ye sinners poor and needy. The third verse says, Let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly dream. All the fitness He requireth is to feel your need of Him. See your unworthiness. See your need of Christ. But do not let this keep you from Christ. Rather, you should be driven to the foot of of the cross in faith and repentance not expecting to receive anything from God because of your good works, but knowing yourself to be unworthy, trust your soul to the grace of God. Like that leper in Luke 5 who said to Jesus, Lord, if thou wilt, you can make me clean. Ask Jesus to make you clean and you will hear his answer as he said to that poor leper, I will be thou clean. Well, centurion, he said to Jesus, Lord, don't trouble yourself. I am not worthy. 
And then he says, say in a word and my servant shall be healed. He believed that Jesus could just say the word and his servant would be healed. He did not think that Jesus needed to come to his house. He didn't think that Jesus needed to lay his hands on his servant or even see him. He said, just speak the word, Jesus, and I know you can heal him. Some of Jesus' closest friends and most devoted followers didn't have faith like this. I think particularly of Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus. And both of those women, they said to Jesus in John chapter 11, they both said the same thing to Jesus when he came. They said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Why didn't you come when we sent word to you? Jesus, if you had come, if you had been here, you could have healed him. But because you were not here, he died. Even Mary and Martha, at this point, they did not understand the true nature of Jesus' authority. But somehow, in the grace of God, the centurion did understand. And he explained in verse 8. Look again there. Luke 7, verse 8. He says, For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers. And I say unto one, Go, and he goes. And to another, Come, and he cometh. And to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. He understood authority. If the emperor in Rome gave an order, when that order reached the centurion, he would carry it out. The emperor didn't need to be there. The emperor could command him and he would carry it out. He was a man under authority. And also he had authority. If he gave an order, those soldiers that were under his authority, they would carry that order out. And he didn't need to be there. His authority alone was sufficient to ensure that his subordinates would do as he ordered. This centurion, he understood authority. And he recognized Jesus as suppressing, as possessing supreme authority, as that title Lord indicates. And so he sent this message to Jesus. And he says, just speak the word with your authority. I know if you just speak the word, my servant will be healed. And upon receiving this message, Jesus marveled. He marveled. That's what Jesus did. Now look at what Jesus said. Jesus commented on the centurion's faith in verse 9. So Jesus receives this message from the friends of the centurion. And then he turns to those who are following him. And this is what he says to them there in verse 9 of our text. I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Who did Jesus tell this to? Most likely a group similar to that group described in chapter 6. People who were curious about Jesus, who had come to see Him from all over, from Judea, Jerusalem, the coast of Tyre and Sidon. They were curious and they wanted to see Jesus in person. There's also likely some of His disciples present, people who were committed followers of Jesus at this point. And then the twelve who were apostles. And maybe also those Jewish elders who had first come to Jesus on behalf of the centurion. They're all going together that way. And to this group, this group that included apostles, Jesus said, This man, this centurion, has a faith unlike any I have found in Israel. I want to close by making some application from the centurion's faith for us. 
I want us to note two things about the centurion's faith which mark it and separated it from the faith of the Israelites. First, this centurion had comparatively little access to divine revelation. What did this centurion know of God? What did this centurion know about the promised Messiah? What did this centurion know of the Old Testament and the promises of God that are found there? Certainly, any Jewish person was better positioned, had greater light, had more opportunity and more exposure to divine revelation. Yet on this occasion, it was not a Jew, but this centurion who had a faith that Jesus called great. May we never assume that anyone is beyond the reach of God's grace. And may we never assume that a little gospel light can't or won't bear any meaningful fruit. And conversely, don't assume that tremendous exposure to things of God will necessarily lead to faith. The Jews, in spite of all the light they had been given, they ultimately rejected their Messiah. And the gospel went to the Gentiles. Here we see an early example or foreshadowing of what would happen. And by way of personal application to you, do this. Be faithful with what revelation God has given you. Too much has been given, much shall be required, and we have much. All of us have tremendous access to the Word of God, unlike any other period in history. Access to the ordinances, to all the benefits of fellowship and discipline and instruction that are found as part of a local church body. Woe to us if we are not faithful with what has been given to us. We have far more light than this centurion ever had. By the grace of God, may we follow his example of faith in Jesus. The second thing which marked and separated the centurion's faith from the faith of the Israelites was his willingness to rest on the words of Jesus alone as sufficient to meet his need. What do I mean? Jesus was on his way to the centurion's house. Why? Jesus could have just said the word and the servant would be healed. And we know this because the servant was healed and Jesus never went to his house. But this centurion did not ask for Jesus to come to his house. He did not demand or even request the bodily presence of Jesus. He did not ask Jesus to touch his servant. What did he ask for? Again, in verse 7, the centurion sent this message to Jesus. Say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. He believed that the words of Jesus, the authority behind his words, were sufficient to meet his need. What all did this centurion believe and understand about Jesus? We don't know. Scripture does not tell us. But this we know. Jesus marveled at his faith, and Jesus called it, a great faith. And Jesus healed the servant. The centurion knew that Jesus was no mere man. He knew Jesus had authority. And he was willing to rest on the words of Jesus as sufficient. Again, compare that to the attitude of the Jews. The Jews asked for a sign. The centurion asked for a word. Now, what application should we make from this? In the infinite wisdom of God, 
Our salvation was actually accomplished in the flesh of Jesus Christ. He was truly man. He was truly God. And as a man, he died on the cross to finish the work of salvation. You ever considered this? That in heaven, the only visible imperfection will be the scars on Christ's resurrected body. An imperfection to the eye, perhaps. But an evidence and a reminder of the perfect salvation accomplished in His body. But our certainty of salvation doesn't rest on the presence of Christ's body. And that's a good thing. If it did, then none of us would have any degree of assurance. Because how many of us have seen Jesus in the flesh? How many of us have heard Jesus say to us, in person, as He said to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger and behold my hands. Reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side and be not faithless but believing. None of us. On that same occasion, Jesus went on and said, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. John twenty twenty nine. Our certainty of salvation does not rest on the bodily presence of Christ. During his earthly ministry, Jesus performed signs and wonders. And at times, these miracles attracted a very large following. But the certainty of our salvation does not rest in signs and wonders. Miracles performed by Jesus, or by you, or by anybody else. Now, Sometimes we might be tempted to think, Oh man, if only we had miracles being performed like those that Jesus did, or those that the apostles did. Then people would believe. Sometimes skeptics say, show me a miracle, and then I will believe. Signs and wonders, miracles, evidence, these things aren't the issue. The heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament showeth His handiwork. Even when Jesus walked the earth, the miracles He performed didn't convince the skeptics. If you remember when Jesus was on the cross, the priests, the scribes, the elders mocked him. And they said, he saved others. Himself, he cannot save. Now listen to this. As he hung on the cross, this is what they said. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. It's Matthew 27, 42. They knew the miracles Jesus performed could only be accomplished by the power of God. Nicodemus said as much in John 3, 2. Yet still they said, do more, and then we will believe. There will never be signs and wonders enough to create faith. Our certainty of salvation does not rest in signs and wonders. Our certainty of salvation, our hope, our confidence, our assurance rests upon the Word of God. Not in some experience, not in our emotions, how we feel at any given time, not in the bodily presence of Christ, not in signs and wonders, but in the Word of God. What God has said, the promises that we have from God. Hear the Word of God and believe. All God has said, He means. All God has promised, He will accomplish. All the judgment that He warns will come, will be carried out. And like the centurion in our text, may our faith rest in the authority of of Jesus' words. The word of Christ is enough. I love this little poem written by Martin Luther. And he wrote it 500 years ago, but it could have been written yesterday. 
It's just as true and applicable today as it was when he wrote it. Feelings come and feelings go. Feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the Word of God, not else is worth believing. Though all my heart should feel condemned for want of some sweet token, there is one greater than my heart whose word cannot be broken. I'll trust in God's unchanging word till soul and body sever. For though all things shall pass away, His word shall stand forever. We rest, we stand upon the authority of God's word. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank You for the short account that we have of this centurion. A short but remarkable account. Lord, I pray that it would be true that all of us would have not the theology of the elders seen in this text who believed in works righteousness that they could earn your favor, but rather may we be like the centurion and see our unworthiness, even our unworthiness to come to you. But then, Lord, may we still come trusting not in our works, but in Your finished work, not in our righteousness, which is worthless, but in Your perfect righteousness, given freely and undeservedly to us in salvation. Thank You for that, Lord. Lord, we pray that we would be faithful with the revelation that's been given to us. Lord, much has been given to us. Help us to be faithful in walking with You. And Lord, we pray also that as we go forward, we would not seek to rest in our feelings, our experiences, signs and wonders, but in what you have said in your word, what has been revealed to us in your word. We thank you for it, Lord. Help us to be faithful. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.